are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. The member listens to you. You have regained that one, but if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Ministry can be a lonely vocation. That sounds like an ominous way to begin a sermon, doesn't it? And if not ominous, then maybe we've moved across the emotional menu and landed on self-pitying or its close sibling, self-indulgent. Look, but I'm just reporting. I'm not editorializing, okay? My life is no more difficult and in many ways probably less difficult than most people, but it's, it's not easy. for any of us, but witness the record clergy, the numbers of clergy who are not only leaving their churches, but leaving ministry altogether. See, loneliness, isolation, those are some of the possible side effects of being a minister, along with, oh, imposter syndrome and depression and free-floating anxiety. But it's not all fun and games. I mean, there's hard stuff, too. I had occasion to reflect on the sometimes lonely nature of ministry. While I was on sabbatical, often alone. <laughs> I mean, of course, sabbaticals are supposed to be times of reflection when you stop and sort of think about the nature of the job. And so, you know, as I sat at home this summer alone, uh, while most everybody else was out doing important real-world stuff, it's no surprise then that my mind kept returning to questions about what does it all mean, right? Am I any good at my job? Or am I just kidding myself? Or, I mean, are there things I could do to help take us where we need to go? Or do we even know where we need to go? And wait a minute, I mean, aren't I supposed to be the minister, which means at least in the tiny fever swamps in my own head, Aren't I supposed to know where we're supposed to go? Me and too much time have had some epic battles in the past. 
And thinking about inadequacies is frequently the field upon which these ruckuses take, take uh, effect. And it doesn't much con uh, take much to convince me that I'm the source of the world's problems, which may come as something of a shock to you since you might also believe that you're the source of the world's problems, but take it from someone who knows <clears throat> you may rest easy, you're not. But so one of the books I was reading made a point about the kind of virtues that we hold dear. The ones that we think make us who we are at the end of the day, when nobody else is around. And it made an interesting distinction between resume virtues and real life virtues. Now, as I was ruminating over that distinction, I had an epiphany. Seriously, it was, it sort of dawned on me, I, I'm really good at resume virtues. Uh, you know, the kind of things that, that we all think are what we're supposed to organize our lives around. What kind of job do you do? How much education do you have? Are you wealthy? Are you famous? You know, how's your health? All of those kinds of things. And obviously, none of them are bad, taken on their own. But look, if you spend your whole life devising the perfect bucket list and then use all of your time and attention in the service of checking off boxes, these of meaningful experiences, then you can, you can die extraordinarily successful and impressive, smart, rich, famous, and alone. I mean, I thought about all the funerals that I've done in my life, and some of the saddest are, 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 are those where everybody agrees that the deceased was really an impressive person. Someone that most people would probably naturally want to emulate because of all the accomplishments. But what doesn't always come through at those funerals, however, is oftentimes the best thing that people who love them can manage to come up with are, are, are kind of trivialities. Like, I remember doing the funeral of a, a, an older man one time, very accomplished uh, man at that, and, and, and the only th thing that came through as I talked with the family about what his life meant, I mean, the kindest thing that they could say was, and they obviously, they loved him, but, but, but the, the thing that they thought to say was, he always had the best looking lawn in the subdivision. Now that struck me as unutterably sad. I mean, not that having a nice lawn is a bad thing. I've heard people do that. <laughs> but I mean, who wants that on their gravestone, right? He was a demon with a weed eater. As the book I was reading was quick to point out, why would we want to expend so much of our lives and energies in the pursuit of achievements that may make good resume and, and, and might even make a heck of an impressive obituary, but leave us without the sense of having made a difference in the places it matters most, among those closest to us? Wouldn't we be better off investing in like, real-life virtues, like Generosity and courage and honesty, wit, gentleness, wisdom, etc. I mean, you know, the kinds of 
virtues that make us better friends, better partners, bosses, siblings, employees, spouses, and maybe good people. All things that make us that, but perhaps make us arguably less impressive people, the way the world judges these things. So all that got to me to thinking uh, that, that real life virtues, the ones that help us to live these lives that we are engaged in every day, um, and not just the impressive lives among those closest to us, but these are the kinds of virtues necessary for us to live together in community. Like these soft virtues, like the ability to speak truthfully or to be a, a person others consider trustworthy, and not just being reliable about taking out the garbage, but about being worth the trust necessary to hold the vulnerabilities of others with gentleness and care. To, 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 to be able to forgive, especially those who least deserve it. To have good boundaries that communicate where you end and I begin. These are the kinds of virtues that allow us to live not just in the memory of those who matter most to us, but they allow us to continue to live deeply within the hearts of those people. Because when it all comes down to it, communities where all of the really important stuff happens, isn't it? I mean, whether that's the community of your family life or your friendships or the, the kind of people uh, who help you survive another day of work, these are the communities that make life meaningful and valuable. Indeed, being deeply embedded in a community is the only way to appreciate resume virtues. Because being the richest and most famous person in the world, alone on your own private island, may sound like a dream vacation for many people, but that's for like a, a, a week, right? Or maybe a month. But being alone on that same private island forever, even if you're the richest, most famous, good-looking person in the world, that doesn't sound like a vacation. That sounds like the definition of hell, doesn't it? No, we want a place, an, an environment, a context where people feel both familiar, where we can relax and assume that they have our best interests at heart, and who are also not afraid to be who they truly are and allow us to be who we truly are. We want a place where we can sit across the table from each other and look each other in the eye. Now, when it's living the way Jesus told us to live, the church strives to embody that kind of presence in the world precisely. Within the context of a body of people. Aristotle famously said, and I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, that human beings are political animals which doesn't, of course, mean that we all watch cable news. No, politics comes from the Greek word polis, which we usually translate as something like community. So a group of people who are bound together in their commitment to a goal. And that goal is always the highest good, right? 
So human beings are made for community. In fact, Aristotle said that any person who doesn't need a community is either a beast or a god. That's just who we are. We need each other. But see, in order to have a community, our common life demands things from us like humility and honesty. Perhaps a, a, a reference to another moral philo uh, philosopher, Immanuel Kant, will, will illustrate why I think this truth is so necessary to the maintenance of our communal bonds. So Immanuel Kant is an 18th century German uh, philosopher who is really dense and boring to read. So, but he had this really important philosophical principle in his second critique of practical wisdom that is called the categorical imperative, all right? Which sounds really complicated. But in essence, it's really just kind of a formal, more societal way of institutionalizing the golden rule. So what the categorical imperative says is basically that we only ought to do those things that we would want to be made law for everybody in the world. Right? We should only find moral those things that we would wish everybody would do all the time in the world. Does that make sense? Uh, for example, uh, to Kant, the reason I know it's not okay to commit murder is because I don't want there to be a universal morality that allows murder because obviously I don't want to be killed, right? <laughs> I don't want to be the victim of that kind of morality. It's the same with speed limits. I, I recognize that having laws governing how fast cars are supposed to travel is a good thing for all people to obey. Well, more or less obey. Since I don't want to drive around on roads where everybody just does what they want. I mean, that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But Kant uses a specific example for how to think morally about this idea of truth-telling, of honesty. He says that the reason it's wrong to lie is because not only does nobody want to live in a world where lying is accepted as normal, but beyond that, a kind of world like that wouldn't even work at all. Think about it. I mean, if we had to wonder all the time if somebody's lying to us, I mean, how could we have a healthcare system? I mean, I'd never know if the pain in my stomach is from trichinosis or, or a bad burrito, right? Uh, because I'd never be able to trust what the doctor told me. How could we do business together? Education to fall apart. If you can't trust what everybody says, what? Nothing works. Think about love. I mean, how could that even be possible? How could, you, how could love be possible in a society in which lying is not only accepted, but expected? You're the only one for me. There's, there's nobody else, seriously. I, 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 I don't have any communicable diseases. As far as you know, See, community demands trust. 
and a trust that can only come from honesty. I worked in a, in a church at one point, <clears throat> and there, was a, there were a large group of people who, who seemed to live their lives as, as if they were suspicious that they were always being lied to, right? Like, 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 like that everybody was dissembling, but they just didn't quite yet know. They hadn't pinned it down, but they were on, they were on the case. Are you sure you didn't see that stapler? Because I left it in the narthex. It's not there anymore. Sorry, I, I didn't see it. Really, because you were in the building that day. Yeah, no, I didn't see it. Yeah, because uh, uh, my Aunt Lucille gave that stapler to the church in her will, and it had a brass plaque on it and everything. Are you sure you didn't see it? You didn't take it? I'm not sure we're having the same conversation. I told you I never saw it. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does a community survive when we don't trust each other? I mean, that's a central issue at stake in the gospel this morning. If another member of the church sins against you, then you go and you point out that fault when it, the two of you are alone. Now, that seems to be kind of saying the exact opposite of what I'm saying, doesn't it? I mean, this passage has often been used as a primer on church discipline, in many cases, as a, as a kind of a pretext for kicking people out that you don't like. Somebody offend you? Run them through the show's social ringer. And if they don't shape up, run them out. The steps for an ecclesiastical dishonorable discharge. It's hard nose, but you know, it's the only thing they understand. Unfortunately, such a reading, though it might work if this passage were read all by itself, fails to take into account something extraordinarily important. Now, you might ask, what is that? It's the passage that comes right before it. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should be lost. Now, think about this. The thick-headed shepherd is missing one sheep. He's got 99 perfectly good other sheep. So what does he do? Does he write off the one lost sheep on his tax returns? Does he casually post on other people's Facebook page, all sheep matter? I mean, he's got 99 well-behaved sheep, ones that haven't given him heartache. Why risk losing any more by going out hunting the one wayward, lost sheep? Well, I, who knows why he does it, but he leaves the 99 
looking with knowing, loving eyes for that one inveterate, wandering little sheep. As a way of saying that this one, this one, is worth risking all the rest. And when the shepherd finds that lost sheep, what does he do? Does he give it a good tongue lashing? Does he make it walk through a humiliating gauntlet of 99 disapproving, judgmental sheep determined to teach it a good lesson about wandering off? No. What does he do? He throws a party. And the verse immediately preceding our passage for today reminds us that it is not the will of your Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should be lost. See, leaving the 99 sheep to find one lost little sheep seems like an odd story to tell as a prelude to our passage today if what Jesus is concerned about is making up a new HR policy about how to fire church people who annoy you. But I think Jesus has more on his mind than that. For one thing, Matthew has Jesus use that odd word, ecclesia, again, which is the word that gets translated throughout the Christian scriptures as church, right? As we've just noted. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, you may say, so what? Well, the problem is that there was no church when Jesus was talking. The church hadn't come along yet. It doesn't come along until after he's gone. But Matthew, on the other hand, knows about the ecclesia, the church. In fact, that's who he's writing to, right? It's to a community of faith. It would appear that there are problems in the church Matthew's writing to, problems that could be best addressed by having stories that have Jesus say a word about how communities of faith are supposed to live together. Not with a set of rules to expedite the removal of troublesome sheep, but a way of living together that trusts troublesome sheep enough to be honest with them. Now, at first glance, that kind of honesty is scary. I mean, after all, what if somebody comes to me and tells me I'm wrong, and I don't want to hear it? I mean, I prefer having people tell me things I like, things that make me feel better about myself. We have political leaders in this country right now who can't bear to hear anything that doesn't acknowledge them as the smartest, shrewdest, most important people in the history of the world. But going back to Kant's categorical imperative, if I will that people only tell me things that I want to hear instead of telling me the truth, then I can really never trust anything they say, can I? Community falls apart without trust, especially trust in the truthfulness of others, our willingness to commit to each other enough to say when there's something wrong. We look one another in the eye with humility and we talk. 
what would a place like that look like? What would it feel like? Right? Wouldn't we all love to be a part of a community where trust is one of the defining characteristics? Where, where a place where I could be truly who I am? Without fear that my honesty about myself would be thrown back in my face? Without fear that somebody's hatching a plan to shame me? What, what would it be like to be a part of a community where each sheep is more important, is important enough to God and, and to the rest of the flock not to be left behind, not to be singled out? If we could live together without fear of the ulterior mo- motives behind somebody else's agenda, without fear that when we hear, we love you just the way we are, that another shoe's certain to drop, without fear that our differences will divide us forever, but are the very thing that we prize, if we could live together like that, wouldn't the rest of the world be more inclined to listen to us when we talk about things like justice? For the oppressed, compassion for for the vulnerable, peace for those in conflict, wouldn't we have more credibility even with ourselves? If we could inspire the kind of trust that could withstand the forces of division, wouldn't our voices be more easily heard when we talk about welcoming the stranger and embracing the rejected and loving those who too often felt unloved? If we could be that kind of community, when we sat around that table and we could look each other in the eye, If we could do that, all we need to do is open the doors and live. Live out there like we live in here. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.